Well, good evening all. I see you have been listening to the words of advice about people sitting on the outside, just one or two strong-minded people who have continued to sit there. But it's lovely to have you all together, and I can see your faces and sort of interact with you. And uh, I don't mind at all personally whether you're sitting on the outside or not. But we're coming to the end tonight of our short series in 1 John. And I want to to begin by reading just the the final few verses of that epistle with you. 1 John 5, reading from verse 14. We we stopped our reading this morning, if you remember, on verse 13. So verse 14 to the end of that chapter. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now that can be a problem, isn't can't it, sometimes for people, you know, this business, I've only got to pray and I'm going to get the answer. We don't get the answer. We, we wonder why. Well, we'll be looking at this in a few moments. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that he should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin, and there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe, and the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now may God bless his word to our hearts tonight. I want to think upon the theme of walking with confidence tonight. And as I mentioned this morning, John coming to the end of his epistle is seeking to encourage, to, to build up, is seeking to set down certain principles that will enable this church with broken relationships, we've talked about that, and all the problems that came from theological Uh, uh, differences to that which was taught by the apostles all of those problems he's now seeking to set forth a way to restore normality if you could put it that way to restore their confidence and their faith and I want to share with you just uh, three or four things that I think we find in this passage as John closes this loving little epistle some years ago when I was home on holidays from language school in Paris, Joan and I were home, a friend loaned us their car. Now, I'll point out the relevance in a moment. To, to travel around, you know, in. We didn't have a car ourselves at that time, obviously. And all went well until one day I was involved in an accident. It was up near Stromelis village. And the car, sad to say, was a write-off. It was a rather nice car as well. 
Now, I, I myself wasn't hurt physically, but you can imagine, can't you, the inner turmoil when I went and knocked on my friend's door and told him, sorry, you did have a car, but you don't have a car anymore. The point I want to make is that for months after that accident, I was extremely nervous while driving a car. I really was. I'd suddenly lost confidence in my driving ability. Now tonight we come to the end of our series and it is possible that there is someone present tonight who because of some disappointment or failure in the past has likewise lost confidence. Confidence in the spiritual journey. And so if that be the case tonight with the Apostle John, we're going to see again how we can have our confidence restored. The first thing that I want to consider with you is that of a prayer-filled life. A prayer-filled life. And we're in verse 14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, verse 14 identifies a confidence that rightly belongs to followers of Jesus Christ. We ought to be confident. And this word confidence means a state of boldness, even in the face of intimidating circumstances. Despite that, we are bold in our God. This is the fourth time John has used the word, and its roots go back to the rise of democracy, I'm told, in ancient Greece, when every citizen had freedom of speech, or confidence, if you like, confidence to say, what was on his mind without fear of reprisal, reprisal or intimidation? And this confidence that belongs to believers is the ability, friends, to ask God for anything. In other words, to pray. Christians can come to God un- uninhibited, full of assurance. And with freedom. And the sad thing about this is that many Christians don't know they have this privilege. And if they do, they undervalue it. Listen again to 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have in approaching God. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. Now, there is only one condition here in receiving what we ask for. Only one condition. And that is the will of God. To pray according to the will of God is to pray according to the heart of God. And the plan of God. And when we learn to pray in this way, friends, God is responsive to our requests. And that's exactly what John is saying. You see, according to the Bible, prayer, in fact, is not an attempt to twist God's arm. To get him to do what we want him to do. Rather, prayer is a personal relationship where our will is molded to his will. Our heart beats in tune with his heart. 
And we find that the things we want most are in fact the very things that he most wants to give us. Again, I would urge you to refer to what is known as the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, who art in heaven. I found that over the years a tremendous help in understanding what prayer really means. Verses 14 and 15 are really describing our own requests about our own needs, what we call petition. When we move down to verses 16 and 17, we find that there uh, our praying uh, referred to, our praying referred to is to do with prayers for other people. If anyone sees his brother commit a sin that does not lead to death, he should pray and God will give him life. And so, supplication, friends, is the word that we usually give to prayer for other people. And indeed, uh, uh, I suppose this has proved difficult for very many people to, to understand down through the centuries what it says here. For instance, I refer to those who sin, John says, does not lead to death. Difficult one, isn't it? Whatever does John mean? Well, the sin that does not lead to death and the sins that do lead to death led the Roman Catholic Church, as we know, to propagate the doctrine of venial sins and mortal sins. And it was directly from this passage that that doctrine arose. Some sins are mortal, in other words, deadly. Some sins are not so deadly, in other words, venial. But what John means by a sin that leads to death is most probably that sin against the Holy Spirit that is mentioned by Jesus and hinted at again by the Apostle Paul in, in 1 Corinthians 11 in regard to those who broke bread unworthily. The sin that leads to death is therefore a cold and calculated rejection of the grace of God. And not one which you or I would ever be likely to fall into, just to reassure you. I do remember, I told you this morning, I was converted at 18. I was student at Stromilla's training college at the time. And this, this was a big problem with me. Have I committed the unforgivable sin? Until someone came along and said to me, listen... You're obviously concerned, aren't you, about having committed the unforgivable sin? I said, yes, I am. I'm just a young Christian. You know, I've done things in my life already that I, that I hate to have to think about. And this guy helped me so much. He said, well, look, you're clearly disturbed by this. And that disturbance, that concern, is proof that you have not committed the unforgivable sin. It disturbs you. It troubles you. And those who have done such a thing have done it coldly, have done it cheerfully, have turned their back upon the grace of God, and they're happy about that. So I just want to explain that that's what I feel, that probably John is referring to the sin that leads to death, the unforgivable sin. But I don't want to, to continue that. So what is John saying in these verses, verses 14 to 17? See to it, my friends. 
that you make prayer an integral part of your life. Because prayer is the greatest weapon that God has provided for his church here on earth. And sadly to say, it's always the smallest meeting of the church. It's always the most difficult thing to get people to do, to make use of this freedom. This confidence to come boldly into the presence of a holy God. John moves on in verse 18 to what I would call a growth-focused life. As John reminds the early church that if we're going to get back into the groove again and establish peace and prosperity, spiritually speaking, among you all, that you ought to think about spiritual growth. You see, we will walk with confidence on our spiritual journey by developing a strong desire to grow as a Christian. I wonder how we that strong desire to grow as a Christian tonight. Let's look at verse 18. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe. And the evil one cannot harm him. Now the authorized version puts it like this. Whoever is born of God sinneth not. This is somewhat confusing to my mind. Is John teaching sinless perfection here? The one who is born of God never sins? No, he's not. The NIV, I think, provides the answer for us. The verb sin is in the present tense, emphasizing the continual and persistent person who seeks a lifestyle of sin. They continue in sin. It's their lifestyle that they have adopted. It is the hedonistic lifestyle of this modern world in which we live. We see it everywhere. There's a program on Radio 4. Radio 4 is going down the drain, folks. It's my personal. But anyway, this morning, telling us, women, did you ever, did you hear of Shanghai? It's a wonderful place to go to. It's the new sex city of the world. The hedonism has crept into almost everything today. And that's what this verse, if you like, is saying. Those who have adopted and who continue in their sin, who glorify in their sin, whoever is born of God does not adopt this lifestyle. Dear friends, sin is anathema to the believer. It's the last thing he or she wants to do. But because we are struggling with our human nature, we will do it. We will fall from time to time, every one of us, including myself. But a person born of God is now alive spiritually and thus unable to live in the same way that he or she once used to live. Now, are you with me? So, says John, If you're truly born of God, you will not persist in this lifestyle that you have adopted, this hedonistic, self-centered lifestyle. 
You will not persist in it. And you know, friends, if we are Christians tonight, and I dare say most of us are, we will be harassed and tempted in our lives. Being a Christian is not an easy experience. You all know that. In fact, if you don't, I'm totally surprised. We know that the devil is at work. But we also know this, that he can't grab us against our will. He can't tear us away from the love of God who protects us. John in his Gospel, chapter 10 and 29, says this, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And we have that protection. Even though at times we will get it wrong. But if we sin, and if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a God we have. What an understanding Savior we have. He shared our human flesh. He knows all about it. And he has made provision for it. So, thank God that we haven't adopted, I trust tonight, a habit of sinning, a sinful lifestyle. But that we have in Christ the opportunity to find forgiveness and cleansing. I think God, and I haven't come to the growth bit, we're coming to that now. I think, in fact, God, if you like, puts a hands-off sign upon his children that not even Satan himself can disobey. No one can pluck us out of the Father's hand. Hands off! This is my beloved child. And Satan is powerless to do anything about that. He can tempt us. He can try us. He can test us. He can make us feel miserable. He can burden us as this morning. But he cannot take us out of the Father's salvation and safety. Now this constant protection, this hands-off sign that God has put upon our lives, gives us space to grow spiritually. We don't have to be so taken up with resisting temptation that we don't have time to grow. And I think that's what John is getting on to here. Friends, you want to spend the rest of your life. Get back in course, he's saying, but you don't want to spend the rest of your life looking over your shoulder to see what Satan's up to next. Forget him. God has placed that hands-off sign. You concentrate on growing in the Lord. The life that is focused on growing spiritually, dear friends, is a life that will discover new joys, new experiences as the years go by. And you and I will never reach a point in our spiritual lives here on earth where we have arrived and no longer need to grow anymore. Never. The sad truth is, however, that many Christians do think like that. They have been Christians for so many years, but they get stuck and they get stagnant. And when you ask someone to give a testimony, they will tell you how they were converted. Probably from drink or something dramatic like that, they will tell you then, God changed my life. And then their testimony comes to an end. Because nothing of importance has happened 
since 25 years ago when they first trusted the Lord. And that's sad, isn't it? Don't you see that? Don't you see how that must grieve our Lord who died for us? That we stop growing? That we no longer hunger to grow? Even though God has put a hands-off sign upon our lives and given us that space to do so. When the world-famous cellist Pablo Casals turned 95, a reporter asked him this. He said, Mr. Casals, you're 95 and the greatest cellist who's ever lived. Why do you still practice for six hours every day? 95. His answer? Because I think I'm still making progress. And that's what I'm trying to say. Friends, never stop seeking to grow in the Lord. You have never arrived. Tell you what, when you get in through, heaven, in through heaven's gates, yes, you've arrived there. So, we need to focus in upon growth. And the third thing that I think that John is perhaps saying here to this church that he loves so much is that they need a truthful life. And we're on to verses 19 and 20. A truth-filled life. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. Even in his son, Jesus Christ, he is the true God and eternal life. That word true keeps appearing. The word no keeps appearing. In verses 19 to 20, I suppose no appears, I think it's four times. And uh, if you look at the verses before that, you'll find the word no appears again. Christianity, friends, is not a question of, of studying theories. We can know whom we have believed. We can know, we mentioned this this morning, verse 13, that we have eternal life. It's not a maybe. It's not a perhaps. We can know without arrogance. We have this witness in our hearts that yes, we're pretty imperfect. We're pretty miserable in many ways, but I know in whom I have believed. And that's a wonderful thing, isn't it? And in this postmodern age, well, there's no such thing as truth, is there? And yet, and yet the scriptures talk about true, true God, true truth. And so, again, we see how the divide is widening between the spiritual walk and the worldly walk, if I could use that term. Friends, a truthful life. Now what are these truths that are mentioned here in this passage? Verse 19 to 20. Well, we can know for sure that we are God's children. I've mentioned that. Secondly, we also know for sure that the whole world is under the influence of Satan. While Satan can't touch the true child of God, the hands-off sign is there. He embraces the world system of our culture and our society today. He is the prince of this world, as is described. Prince of darkness. 
We know for sure that God's Son came to give us understanding of these things. So we are not left to guess desperately about God and his ways. This word understanding is an interesting word. It means developing a pattern of thought. Developing a pattern of thought. Verse 20, we know also that the Son of God has come and given us understanding. Developing a pattern of thought. It's similar to what people today call a worldview. Talked about that already. Jesus came so we could develop a God-focused, a Christ-given worldview. That's what he means by understanding what is going on and why things are happening. So that we can look at our lives and our society through the filter of God's truth. We can have a different perspective on what is happening around us. We can have this spiritual worldview, this understanding that, of things that are happening through God's eyes. Someone defined the word wisdom in the Bible as seeing things from God's perspective. And really, that's what he's talking about here. Seeing what is going on through the filter of God's truth, if you like, and so see them the way God sees them. What sort of words have we got tonight? So often, so often, the world can impose itself upon Christian people. Very subtly, slowly over a period of time, we can adopt a worldview that is contrary to God's view. And we need to be careful about that. The big question here is, of course, how do we develop this truthful life? This understanding of things going on around us. How do we develop that? We begin, I think, by immersing ourselves in the word of God. And Paul is not apologizing that here we have truth. I know that in this world you're not supposed to say that. But I believe that we have truth here. I've never yet in my 69 years never yet discovered what I have here in this book not to be true. So we begin by immersing ourselves in this book. And by that I, I don't mean that stipulated ten minutes we have before we rush out to catch a bus to work in the mornings. Where, what, what do I have to read today? Oh yes, verse 1 or verse 5 to 6. We read verse 5 to 6. Quick prayer and we're away. And I'm not being trying to be cynical here or sarcastic. I'm simply stating what this is all of our experience, isn't it? It's, this is, happens to us all. Time is such a uh, putting so demands upon us that we do not immerse ourselves in this book. I often think of Charles Wesley way back in the 18th century, was it? My century's gone. Who is 18th or 19th? John. John was the 18th, wasn't he? And John Wesley, although that guy got up early in the morning and went to bed late at night, he had the joy of getting on his horse. And maybe an hour and a half or two hours later he arrives at where he has to preach. 
And I remember thinking this as a pastor, flying around from one hospital to the next. Oh, to be a John Wesley. Just time to immerse yourself in the word of God. You could nearly prepare a sermon on the way. Life was so much slower, wasn't it? But today, friends, the danger is that the Bible and God's truth will be squeezed out. We need to face up to that. If we take our Christianity seriously, as I'm sure you do, and if we want to see this spiritual view of God, this understanding that God gives us of the Word, we need to know what the Word says because He reveals so much in His Word to guide us. Look, friends, I'm having to fly on here. Incidentally, one of the greatest blessings in my life, when I say immerse yourself in the Bible, immerse yourself in Christian books, good Christian books. Hudson Taylor, the life of Hudson Taylor, I think it was probably by John Pollock. When I was in my early 20s, was a blessing to me. And there I discovered for the first time what full surrender to God really meant. And we need to do that. We need to read the lives of other believers who have made their mark. That's all part of gaining this understanding. Let me go on to the last point. The last point is this. A faithful life. We need to live a faithful life. And we're thinking of the last verse of this little epistle. It's a loving little verse. Dear children. Dear children. Keep yourselves from idols. Often people think, if I was dying, what would be the last sentence I would, I would mutter or utter or whisper in the presence of my loved ones? This was John's last sentence in his loving letter to a church that was nearly breaking his heart. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now the word translated keep yourselves means to watch something closely. It's a bit like, do you remember about, what, was five years ago George Bush came over? to Stormont or Hillsborough Castle and he had with him his bodyguard. Do you remember seeing that on television? All these guys with the little microphones here and the little things behind their ear and there were about five or six of them all around him keeping watch over George Bush. It was Hillsborough Castle. They were keeping him from harm. They were watching him closely. Gary Burge puts it like this. We must be diligent and alert and never passive when it comes to taking care of ourselves. Particularly in the spiritual context. Okay? Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. In other words, when it comes to taking care of ourselves, this is something only you can do for yourself. I cannot do it for you. Your friends cannot do it for you. Your church cannot be responsible for your spiritual growth. Well, it can in a way. You're on your own in this. Keep yourselves. Each individual among you there, he's saying, from idols. Each of us must guard our own lives. 
Do I do a good job? What about the telly again? You're thinking, I knew he was going to talk about television. Your wife's way to bed. You have the zapper in your hand. And you go through those channels just out of curiosity. Suddenly you stumble upon a torrid sex scene. And you linger. And you fantasize. And you say, Lord, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. And you do it again a few weeks later. Girls, you're not... You're not uh, exempt from that either. Keep yourselves. It is your responsibility before God to live a disciplined, focused life on that which is pleasing to him. Jack John, uh, Jackman, in his commentary on this verse, at the end of John, says, he says this, An idol is anything that squeezes God out of the center position and into the margins of my life. I want to tell you this, if you get into the habit of watching pornography, God will be squeezed out. Oh yes, he will. God, the pure and perfect and holy God, will be squeezed out into the margins of your life. Another definition of an idol is this. Trusting people, possessions or positions to do for me what only God can do. They become idols in your life. The problem therefore of idols is essentially a problem of faithfulness. Hence this word. Faithful life. And when we come to know Christ personally, we enter a relationship, friends, of faithfulness where he promises... To stay with us, to walk with us, to forgive us our sins and intercede for us. While we promise to walk with him, obey him and trust him. That's called a dipluric covenant. That's a good word, isn't it? It's a two-way covenant. God promises so much, but we in turn have also agreed that we will do certain things for him, that we will love and honor and follow him. And friends, when we turn to a God substitute, an idol, we become unfaithful to that promise. Like a spouse who breaks a marriage vow. Some of the God substitutes we struggle with today are things like materialism, success, leisure, comfort, all of which can, if we're not careful, draw us away from the one who gave up everything, everything for us. So that we reach the stage where a lukewarm heart replaces the passion with which we began our walk with God. And compromise and apathy replace the enthusiastic commitment with which, with which we once followed him. My dear children, keep yourselves from idols. And so there it is. God invites us to walk the spiritual journey in a hostile world with confidence. We can do that by developing a prayerful life, a growth-focused life, a truthful life, and a faithful life. May God grant us the grace to examine our hearts and to 
recommit to honour him in the days that I had. Thank you for listening to me. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the end of this Sunday, we pray that we may have heard your voice. And having heard it, Lord, may it not come across as a scolding from God the Father, but as loving words filled with God's grace towards us. As he would desire that we might get to know him better. That we might learn how truly to pray so that we will see more and more answers to our prayers because our hearts are in tune with you, Father. And we will find that you and I, Lord, want the same things. So bless this church, Lord. Bless whoever the new pastor may be and grant that under your Holy Spirit his ministry might be powerful and that it might bring glory to your name in these days. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.